Hello, Los Angeles arts community and beyond. I'm your host of the Art Break podcast, Carolina Sique. Even outside of the rehearsal space, we are constantly in awe of how ISC Ensemble members continue to create amazing work and change in the arts community. Today's Art Break episode features one of our favorite artists slash activists that has graced our stage. ISC's Artistic Associate for Social Justice, Kearney Rose Mekertichian, sits down with actress, activist, and ISC Ensemble member, Sabra Williams, to talk about social justice work with organizations like the Actors Gang and Creative X, creating a national truth commission, the importance of the arts, and the many layers of dismantling systemic white supremacy. So, Sabra, thank you so much for joining me in this virtual space. I always My whole enjoy- life is a virtual space, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's always. I'm always seeing you in the virtual space, but I, I do want to see you in real life soon, hopefully. Oh, please uh, back. Yeah. But thank you for joining us um, and being here to talk and share. I know everyone in our ISC family would love to hear from you. So to start us off, I just wanted to see if you could give everyone a little brief overview of your work as an artist and how you came to be involved in ISC and part of our ISC family. How long have you got? <laughs> I know, I know, like a brief overview for Sabra, who's done everything. This is a long story. Um, a view of my life as an artist. Well, I mean, I was born into a theatrical family, so it's kind of like my whole life. My mom is a director and my stepdad is a playwright. Um, my dad died when I was four and uh, I started training as a dancer at that age and became a professional mm-hmm. dancer. And then all the time I was acting alongside, you know, being in my mom's shows and stuff. Um, and then I think I got to, I got a few injuries when I was dancing as dancers do. And I started getting more and more acting work. And so I really had to make a decision when I was like 25 Ooh. as to what I was going to do because I would do an acting job and then I'd get a dancing job and I'd get injured because I wasn't in shape because I wasn't able to be in class. Um, So eventually I had to be like, you know what, dancing is the closest thing to flying and I love it, but it's such a short career like an athlete. So let me just go all in for acting. So that's what I did and, you know, had a really fantastic time as an actor in the UK. And then just really felt like we were too comfortable and it's not good for an artist to be comfortable, you know? And um, I always wanted to live in America. I did live undocumented in America for a year when I was like 19, like a crazy person. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's a whole other story. Left my (laughs) country with a hundred dollars and went to New York. With a hundred dollars? You can't do that now. stupid it was really dumb but anyway it was an amazing year um but then I decided to do it properly and applied for an exceptional ability green card based as a career-based green card and thinking I mean that probably won't happen and then suddenly my lawyer was like yes you got accepted and I was like oh my god now we have to really go to America we have to really decide and so um my husband you know, I wanted to go back to New York. My husband doesn't like New York. He's the only person in the world that doesn't like New York. He wanted to go to Miami. I know there are a few, but he wanted to go to Miami. I was like, hell no. Really? No. Um, and so LA was a compromise. And I think, you know, my husband was born in Uganda. So he was, he was African and he was brought up in the sunshine. And, you know, I'd had enough of rain and darkness. So we were like, California. That would be great. So literally came here as an actor, just thinking I was just going to do film and TV and happened to discover the Actors Gang, which was, you know, it's a Tim Robbins theatre company and started as an actor there and, you know, was able to travel the world, playing great roles for them and really started to understand that, there was more to America than meets the eye and started to discover about mass incarceration and just didn't know, you know, I'm like a person of action. I always say, you know, an actor, like a person of action, 
and didn't know what I could do. I can't just see an injustice and just walk by, but I had no idea how to address it. Um, and then just, you know, I really was like, wow, the work at the Actors Gang is really changing things inside of me. It would be great in prison. So I literally went to Tim and was like, hey, can I be involved in any kind of, you know, engagement you do with prison? Yeah. He was like, what are you talking about, crazy? We don't have anything like that. Um, wow. Start something. And that's how the Actors Gang Prison Project started. Wow. Yeah. And that's the work that you have done the work that you do with the Actors Gang and also, or that you did with the Actors Gang and also the work that you are currently doing with Creative Acts, which is incredible. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about Creative Acts and how you became such a fierce advocate for our community members who are incarcerated? Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, so, you know, working the last 15 years bringing arts programming behind bars, first of all, with the Actors Gang, with the theater program. And then, you know, I left there three years ago now um, to start Creative Acts, which is a social justice arts organization, which kind of doesn't exist, but we're making it, we're, we're inventing something. You made it exist, so it exists. Um, and really I wanted to deepen and broaden the work beyond just doing theater. And so um, Creative Acts really exists to further serve our brothers and sisters inside with uh, creative and artistic ways for them to transform trauma, um, reimagine their lives, disrupt the system, <laughs> and you know, have a, a more successful reentry process. And so what we do at Creative Acts is um, we started in Juvie in 2018 when I found out that young people who are incarcerated are allowed to vote, but I knew that they were not being engaged to vote and, you know, that they did not understand their power and the tool of voting as a way to make change, like change that really affects them. And so we created an arts workshop for them, drawn art, playing, uh, written art, to help them understand their connection with their community through civic engagement. And we brought on March for Our Lives, which is a youth anti-gun violence uprising that happened yeah. after. So they're amazing. So our, our teaching artists are as young as 15. And um, then we also have teaching artists who have lived experience of being in the exact prisons that our young people are in. And so it was this very, very powerful program that we had to do online because prisons are closed. You know, we did it over Zoom. Um, but we felt like we could really have an impact on these young people. And it was astounding, as you know, because you were part mm -hmm. of it. It, um, it was an amazing experience. Life changing. The end of it. Huh? I said it's life changing. Yeah, it really it's was. Awesome. And they started to understand that, that their place in the world. I mean, I remember the first class. I don't know if you were in the first one, but one of the young women said, you know, I'm just a young black girl in prison. Why does my vote mean anything? Who cares about me mm. and my vote? And then by the end, she was like, oh, hell yes, I'm getting to my community. I'm going to tell my parents to vote. And, you know, we had 100% of them voted in the presidential election, which was That's amazing. Right. It was amazing. Right. Beautiful. And then the other work that we're doing at Creative Acts is I've been told over the years by my friends who are returning um, from prison that they literally cannot engage in any way in the, their community because everything's computerized. So they can't even check out at a supermarket, pump gas, go to the ATM. They can't do anything. They don't know how to do anything if they've spent more than a couple of decades inside. Or wow, a decade you're right. Nothing. I mean, how do you yeah. do anything? Yeah, right. They don't have cell phones. They don't have computers. They don't know how to operate. And so, so many of them go back because they're like, this world is not for me. And they're, they tend to be very proud people who won't ask for help. So I've spent quite a lot of time thinking about how can I make this better for them? How can we? And then, you know, talking to them because they're the experts and came up with this idea about using virtual reality because it acts on your brain like you've had the experience. So using virtual reality to simulate outside experiences while they're still inside serving life sentences. 
so that by the time they you know come back they're ready to re-enter and they can just re-enter easily so That's we're amazing. doing like yeah we're doing like day-to-day -day experiences but we're also doing conflict resolution travel oh, meditation, wow. like all these things that they don't have access to and it's it's super powerful we did you know we did a convening with our experts who of course are them and um one of the guys had done 40 years in San, in, in, San Quella, in Pelican Bay, uh, which is the only supermax prison. And he did 30 years in solitary confinement. 30? 30? Years. Yes, three zero. And so he, That's like many of them, it's, it's, it's torture. It shouldn't even be legal. Literal torture. Not legal. Um, but uh, like hmm. many of them, of, you know the people who are my partners inside they've never left their you know two blocks where they live let alone travel wow. and so we put him in this headset and took him to thailand for like three minutes on virtual reality oh my god this dude his life just changed he took it off he was bawling crying his eyes out wow. he was like i never knew the world was so beautiful makes me want to cry awesome. you know i never knew the world was so beautiful i didn't ever think this was for me you know, now I know this is what the world is like. I'm going to <clears throat> find ways to travel, you know. Mm. And that kind of thing is that it, it's just such a sharp divide in this country, you know, how segregated this country is and how so many people just don't have experiences that others take for granted. Yeah, or the oh, access for that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. So it's everything that ranges from having an experience in another country to like doing day-to-day -day activities such as like learning to use technology or like learning how to like check out at a cash register. So it's really like the full range of experiences Everything. that they're also, missing out on. Yeah, and conflict resolution and parenting. And also the amazing thing about VR is that you can do anything, right? So like it's also um, uh, getting them ready for employment and you can be like super general or super specific. So for instance, we could have a construction company who need to employ people to use a certain machine and we can go and film the content there, take it in and train our guys. And when they come back, they step out of prison, they'll have a job and they're perfectly trained for this company. It's gonna be oh, amazing, right? you can do anything. That's so amazing. One of the really positive, amazing things that comes with technology. I think yeah. virtual reality, there is so much potential there and I, it's something that I haven't even been thinking about, but that's incredible. Oh my God, you can do anything. And then the other program that I want to do with VR, with the prisoner, like, could you just start on like a normal maximum yard to begin with before? Because I want to go to solitary with it because those are my guys. I know those guys. Yeah. <laughs> Ones who are like gang leaders who have, as they call, they call them their knuckleheads, but I love these guys. <laughs> I, I've seen them transform their lives so quickly. But yeah. to go in there and I want to do meditation with them and I want to do, because you can do like meditation when you're like traveling through the universe. VR is amazing. And then I want to do this thing called, I don't know if you know, called uh, Tilt Brush, where no. you draw a picture and it can be all like sparkles. And, you know, I like had all sparkles in it and stuff. But you can just draw like this 3D picture and then you can walk into the picture. So I want them, yeah, I want them to draw this a picture. Isn't, wow, I've never heard of any of this. So oh you God, can physically draw it while you're in virtual reality. Yeah. I guess you have some sort of pen or something that you're it's like a thing with your hand, like a yeah. Wow. And then you draw it. So I want them to draw like a picture of home, and then you can step into it. You can be in it. Like mm. it's incredible. So. I feel like the potential of VR is really amazing for people who are incarcerated. And also we have to plant a flag in it as artists because what also will happen is what always happens in, you know, white supremacist structures is that they're going to take it and use it to, you know, they already, you know, I'm ready hearing things about, we'll give it as a reward or take it away if it's punishment or, you know, yeah. we're use it instead of programming or instead of visits. And so we have to- Oh no. We have to be very careful, plant a flag for it. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not sure what all of the capabilities are, but it also makes me a little nervous with regards to just like labor as well and prison labor. Yeah. 
Yeah. I don't know if it's possible to use it that way to exploit. Um, they will always find a way to exploit. I don't <laughs> know. You never have nice things. Exactly. <laughs> but we're trying to like corner the market in it so that it can't be used in those harmful ways that we can somehow, especially in California, be like, listen, this is how, you know, we're creating a culture for VR so that when it rolls out across the state and the country, which it will in the next five years, that we can say, have a, this is how it, how you should use VR. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's incredible. That's something that I remember you mentioning Creative X was getting involved in, but I didn't know the full range of what was happening with VR and what was possible. So that's- Oh my God. And then imagine like the next thing I want is to teach them while they're inside how to create content. And then they can come out and have amazingly paid jobs creating virtual reality content. I mean, yeah. It would be, yeah. yeah. And so there can be, there's just so much potential, yes, for like workshops, speakers, yeah. um, just so many things, so many skills and all of that. And that's the problem that always happens, which I'm sure you're fully aware of. People, they come out and then they're at a disadvantage. They've been inside, like you were saying, for however many years and are not up to date on all the latest technology. They might not have um, the degrees that, you know, in this um, society we're told that we need for certain jobs and all of that. So it's I'm really great. university, so you know, it's not true. <laughs> no, it's really not. And that's a, I mean, this is a whole other thing, but that's a problem with um, our American mindset and the fact that we believe that to be successful, one, you have to have higher education and two, like, um, you know, trade schools are, are not included in that right. education, which is necessary. And oftentimes, you know, people can have like full, amazing, spectacular careers on, you know, trade schools and all of that. Those are the jobs that we need as well. It's Something that we need to really get out of that mindset, and it's that whole it's a whole again, capitalistic like, yeah, it's capitalistic white supremacy that puts into our heads like what is merit and what is experience. And we think that merit is a degree, and we think experience is like many years at the helm. But mm. you know, we need to flip that on its head because I don't have merit, you know, I didn't, I was a dancer when I was 16. I didn't have time to go to university, but I teach at U USC and UCLA. Yeah. So, you know, it can't be that <laughs> like important. I mean, it is important. It's a great opportunity. My son's at college. It's a great opportunity, but it's not the only experience or the only merit, you know, we should value. And many of my people, I've learned more inside prison than I have anywhere else in my life these last 15 years. And the people mm, that I've learned, I mean, like life lessons you wouldn't imagine, and just joy, like ways to be joyful. And, you know, these people have experience that is not valued that could be life-changing, you know? Yeah. And they're like, you know, when, when I go into prison and I see somebody with some contraption in their cell that they've built that's like a TV or a fan, like they built from nothing, you know, they can do yeah. anything. They are like engineers. They're brilliant. Now. <laughs> they're brilliant. But the reason that they're in prison is A, because their communities are over policed and militarized, yeah. and B, because we have only one very narrow way of being successful in school. You know, it's very narrow way of success mm. is test oriented. And when you have trauma, as most of our people do, you know, who've been exposed to violence and gangs and trafficking and, you know, drugs and generational incarceration, you can't succeed well in that very narrow way of learning. You need alternative, mm. ways, alternative ways to learn, which the arts give alternative ways to learn. And when they meet the arts, they're super successful, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's really, again, that's another super critical point that I hope people just think more about while we're in this time of talking about, you know, um, making changes to this system, dismantling all of this systemic white supremacy. Like, I hope people understand that our educational institutions are also steeped in white supremacy. Like it's not something that is obvious, like um, 
police brutality all the time. It's everywhere. So yeah, it's also it is quite obvious, you know, for me as an immigrant. Well, yeah, for <laughs> some of us, yes. Yeah, but when I look at like, I mean, even just one example, as my son went through public school, you know, um, we were shocked that in America you don't well learn any world geography or world history mm -hmm. until 10th grade, by which time you've been indoctrinated by the big lie about American exceptionalism and yes. number one and all these freedoms that no other country has, not true, you know? So by doing that, you, you prepare people to be able to, um, well, to really only believe the lie that they're told because they don't have their own experience. And that is in education, but it also affects things like healthcare, you know, because Americans, in general, mm -hmm. don't know any other system. They nope. think this is the only way, but it isn't the only way. And, you know, it's destroying this country. Yeah. And not only, I mean, when we are taught, um, quote unquote, world history, it's incredibly Eurocentric, first yeah. of all. And second of all, it's always framed within this country's connection or historical connection yeah. to the United States. So it's really like, exactly. okay, well, we're only mentioning these countries and how they relate to the United States in World War II or X, Y, Z. And yeah. that's also, you know, how um, people get into that mindset about universal healthcare and they're like, oh, well, socialism, socialism, socialism. It's like, well, if you actually knew more about like other <laughs> systems and uh, other ways of governing in different places, you'd understand that um, socialism is not necessarily a, you know, a bad word. And it's it's also, this is also a socialist okay. country already, by the way, yeah. this is yeah. a socialist country. It's just not European socialism, which is social you know, security, like the we can talk about it. Which we just saw in the last year that we desperately need a social safety net because mm -hmm. that, that, that will happen again. You know, it's gonna happen again. It's like we we have to we are we are only um upholding the people who benefit the most by not demanding what is ours. We're paying for it. We're paying for universal health care and our taxes. Yeah. Not only are we not getting it, we're also paying double to insurance companies through the nose more than any other country pays for healthcare. And I'm telling you, in a year from now, when all these COVID bills become due, we're going to have another economic issue because people are going to be bankrupted by hospital bills. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's just <laughs> unacceptable. And then, you know, when I hear this thing about we have the greatest freedoms, First, oh, I think mass incarceration, number one, by the way, when I think about that. But I also think, have you ever been to Scandinavia? <laughs> have you ever, like, this is not the only country with freedoms. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have more. It's, yeah, it's like you said, that American exceptionalism. We And that's what we're literally brought up to believe. You know, being well, someone right. who was in, you know, yeah. our public school system, it's literally like, we're the greatest country. Yeah. This is, you wow. know, home of the free. This is what we fought for when yeah. we got our independence from England and this, that, and the other. Sorry, everybody. Like, <laughs> home. But also, we don't ask why enough. We have to ask yeah. why more because we just, you know, I don't, I, you know, even if people do kick back, we don't stop to ask ourselves, well, why does this happen? Why did this happen? Why are there a lot of brown and black people and people of color and indigenous people in prison more than white mm -hmm. people? We don't ask. We just look and we say, oh, that's just the way it is. But it isn't. <laughs> it's not. It's not just the way it is. And it's not that hard to change. Yeah. You know? Yeah, there's a lot... There's so much to unpack, but this is also, this is a good segue um, to my next question. So I wanted you, this is all, this is very exciting. It's something I think about all the time since I've known this is happening. Can you tell us a little bit more about the really critical work that you're doing right now in bringing truth and reconciliation to the United States and what that would entail, what it should entail? 
Yeah, all about it. I'm, I am not bringing it to the United States. I cannot accept responsibility. Well, the work credit. you're doing to bring it with others. Yes. So you, are, you are doing it. You are putting in that work now. contributing to uh, uh, an existing push for a national truth. Where we don't call it reconciliation because what are we reconciling to? There's no reconciling. Um, so it's called Truth, Racial Healing and Transformation. And it it basically is a push to set up truth commissions like happened in South Africa and Rwanda, Australia, several other places. Um, and it's come about through Dr. Gail Christopher and uh, Dr. Marcus Hunter. Both of them were working on, well, actually Dr. Gail Christopher, when she ran the Kellogg Foundation, helped to develop an idea of how that could work in this country and congresswoman barbara lee and uh senator cory booker have created bills in congress and in the senate that would help us to set up a national truth commission to talk about racial healing and transformation which no country on earth needs it more than america mm -hmm. does right now right mm -hmm. so it it's interesting because um I was fortunate enough. I've, I've wanted to do this for 18 years in this country since I moved here, um, but could not figure out how one little actor, <laughs> immigrant woman would be able to do that. But luckily I managed to find out this was happening and got invited to be part of the group. Um, and actually it's interesting because I was in 2018. Yeah, I was um, a Bellagio Rockefeller fellow, which means that you get to go for a month to the most beautiful place on earth in Italy on Lake Como. And I went to write the book that I'm writing. Um, and there, there were 13 other people from around the world. And one of them was uh, Chief Justice Mosaneki, who was the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in South Africa um, mm -hmm. and was in prison with Mandela and was one of the people that helped to write the constitution and to create the truth commissions. So as soon as I heard that, I like ran up to him. I was like, okay, how do we do it in America? Help me, how can we do it? And he said, you know, one of the things you have to remember is when we did it, the reason it wasn't completely successful is because we would ask the poor farmer to come from his barren farm to tell his truth and tell his story and obviously re-traumatize himself as he was talking about apartheid, but then, he went back to his farm and it was the same barren farm and nothing had changed for him. So Chief Masaneki said, you have to include reparations. We didn't do that. If you don't include reparations. Yes. So amazingly, Sheila Jackson Lee has been trying for 30 years <laughs> to get a reparations bill through. And it looks like it's going to come to the floor in the house Ooh. in the next few months. Oh, so that's goodness. going hand in hand with that. And my role in this push is to um, find ways to make the arts part of the process of this dialogue and the commission, because that's what we do at Creative Acts. So we do anti-racism training, DEI training through the arts at Creative Acts. We advise politicians and corporations on how to have an artistic process that isn't just like, you know, how we think about the arts in this country is like, Oh, yes, how lovely. Let's have a song at the end of our event or let's, you know, have a poet, poet, recite a poem. All great. Right. But that's not what we're doing at Creative Acts. We're not teaching people how to be artists. We're using the arts in the process. So rather than sit around a table just talking, we have people up on their feet playing together. And the reason is because I've seen inside prison that this is how you dismantle barriers of race and separation. So our guys inside are mandated to attack each other if they're from rifle gangs. Right. In the class, we have white supremacists, Southerners, Northerners, Crips, Bloods, everybody you can imagine in the room together playing like children. And so yeah. it's incredible. By the end of it, they're like, these guys in this room are more my brothers than my gang which doesn't sound like any big deal to us, but for them, that's like, some of those gangs are blood in, blood out. Like you don't get to leave those gangs. But mm. now 
they've changed the culture because now their brother is a white supremacist or in a Latino gang or, you know, um, and it's all done by kind of like, I call it a Trojan horse. You know, you think you're doing one thing, you're just playing, but really what you're doing is developing empathy, self-reflection, accountability, and starting to be like, oh, if I'm going through this, maybe this guy over here is not just being a dick. You know, maybe he also is going through what right. I'm going through. And then it goes to the officers. Like maybe this crazy officer is also doing going through what I'm going through. And I've seen it happen very quickly and very beautifully over the course of 15 years. So I want us to do that on a national level. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah. And <laughs> I think that's one of the things um, that makes art so powerful that yes, it is a way to spark empathy in each other and to bring about change and um, justice. But um, it's so interesting because we mentioned like when we're performing, when we're doing these exercises, we're playing. And I think it's, that's why whenever I've, been teaching theater and drama and stuff like that. I always have the easiest time when I'm teaching kids because they're so free and fresh and open-minded and willing to play. And I think part of what the arts does is it kind of brings us back to that time and that space when we were younger and we didn't have all of these prejudices and we were just open and exploring and experiencing with each other. And I, that's so beautiful that you get yeah, to and it, work. I will say that my folks have generally not had the opportunity to play as children. You know, yeah. they were in survival mode or in gangs or facing a lot of violence. But I always used to think, well, that's it now. Their brains are formed and, you know, they're adults. We work with young people as well, but I'm thinking about the adults, you know. Mm -hmm that that's it for them. But actually what I've seen is you can actually rewire your brain through play. And there's quite a lot of science about play, about what it does to the brain. And, you know, so I have like, I remember the very first class we ever did in 2006, I had this one older guy who was like in his sixties. And at the end of it, he said to me, you know what I've seen today, one day, he said, you know what I've seen? He said, you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> he was like, Wow. I think my life in this class. Yeah. He was in his 60s and we did one class. It's not that hard for people to change, but they have to have access. It's an equity issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and we have to be supported and funded to be able to do these programs that are life changing. Mm -hmm. Say it. That's right. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. <sighs> exhausting. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. We all know. Don't we know? So I, I think, yes, it is safe to say that um, most of our listeners right now are artists or they and or they consume art. And I wanted to know, we've already kind of touched on this, but if you could speak to the power and importance of the arts, particularly during this time in which in addition to the pandemic, we have seen this push for true, genuine, genuine equity and restorative justice. Um, so it's starting to find its way into our theatrical institutions as well, in addition to this finally <laughs> coming to the popular consciousness with everyone else. So I'm people like you. <laughs> well, hey now. <laughs> but I wanna um hear, you know, some of your thoughts on that. I know we both have so many thoughts. <laughs> Are you talking about my thoughts about the power of the arts? Yeah, the power of the arts and just especially during this time, given like not just the pandemic, yes, the pandemic, but also this movement for justice that we're in. Yeah. Uh I feel like I've been in in a movement for justice for at least 15 years. But um, yeah, um, so I'm writing a whole book about this. <laughs> the power of the art yes. is very underestimated in this country. I mm. think less so in Europe, you know, where I come from, wherever you go to school, whatever your background is, chances are you've been to the theater before you're an adult because your school will take you to the theater. Um, in most European countries, the arts are, central to culture but here we've managed to and it's not it's artists fault too i have to say you know we've managed to sideline the arts into being something that is seen as just entertainment or just for artists 
But what my folks have taught me over the years is that it's essential for being fully human. And mm. indigenous cultures understand this. In indigenous cultures, artists are shameful, right. you know, and the arts are Art storytelling. Yeah, it's medicine and it is medicine. And so what happens is because artists ourselves don't stand up or understand the, fully the power of the arts. I didn't until I was working in prison. So we allow them to be sidelined. And, you know, I think that the last, you know, since I've lived here, a lot of my work has been to get the arts written into legislation. Because what happens is that when there's a bill or something, you know, like now Measure J, let's say, which is a bill that passed in Los Angeles County to take 10% of the county budget and put it into the community and into decarceration. So even in that bill, and we fought hard for it. A lot of artists fought hard for that. The arts aren't even mentioned. So they, I looked at the bill and like, you know, they mention mental health and job training and, you know, men, you know, all of the things that are necessary, but the arts aren't mentioned anywhere. So I was like, oh, oh interesting. <laughs> Why aren't the arts mentioned? And the response is always, oh, no, we love the arts. Oh, no, we'll definitely, we'll use the arts. But because it's not in writing, mm. whenever we hit a recession, that's the first thing to go. So it's last yeah and first out. So I fought very hard, not alone, obviously with other people, to get the arts written into legislation. And um, when I was at the Actors Gang, Tim and I got a line item in the state budget for arts and corrections, which means they're now arts, well, we led the push for that. And what that means is that arts are now in all 35 prisons. You know, I fought very hard in a very, very bizarre situation. I mean, I was working with, the Obama administration and with the Holder DOJ in the last but two administrations ago um, and, you know, was working hard on the president's bill, you know, criminal justice reform bill that certain powers that be refused to let go, come to the floor. But, you know, that mm -hmm. bill, they had everything again in it, but no arts. And so I got the word arts into that bill. And even now, because people care so little about the arts overall, it went through the president's bill in Congress, in the Senate, then it went into the First Step Act bill, and the arts is still written in there, only because nobody even noticed. Well, <laughs> you know? But I'm just saying that it's so important that we as artists understand the power of the arts beyond becoming famous or being an influencer or getting our next job or am I too fat or too old or too dumb mm. or too whatever it is. Oh, I started hearing an echo. Oh, maybe that was for me. I just was very vigorously like, mm-hmm, because oh, I feel um, Yeah, so anyway, it, what happens, you know, with that, when we concentrate on that and we don't concentrate on understanding the power of the arts to become fully human, we're responsible for the demise of the arts. We are yeah. responsible for it. We all should be campaigning. All artists should be campaigning for the arts to be in the core of the school day. Not, yeah. an elective, not an extra, but like you do math and English. I grew up like that in school. It math, was English. You did not music. have that either. It was yeah. like some of us were lucky where we would have like um, a guest and I went to public school here in public elementary school, Ivanhoe in Silver Lake. And we would have, you know, maybe like a guest come once a week for like a semester, or maybe we would have like a music class. So we were very lucky. There are some schools that don't even have that. But even then it was like an afterthought end of day. Like, but actually that's illegal. Week that actually then. is illegal. Because my son didn't get it either until his last year of high school. But it's in the education code that all children must have access to the arts in the California wow. education code, just that nobody was doing it. So yeah. it's actually illegal for it not to happen. But it's not just access to the arts as an elective, which is what it was. Yeah. Um, in my son's last year at high school, you had to have one art thing to pass high school. But it needs to be like math and English and science. It should yeah. be, you know, math music, science, theater in your school day. Mm -hmm. We need to, 
We as artists need to make sure, well, first we need to recognize and understand that art and what we do is essential. Yeah. It's essential work. It's essential to being a well-rounded, empathetic human being. And we need to fight to make sure that everyone else knows that and is aware of that. And I think it's it kind of goes along with what you touched on earlier. Um, oftentimes there are a lot of, you know, actors who get very into that capitalist mindset of, okay, job to job, okay, commercial, boop, 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 great, I'm doing well, this, that, and the other. And they're not really thinking about um, how powerful art is. I think when you're a teaching artist and you teach theater in schools and you teach with youth, you really get to see the power of empowering young people, especially young people who come from marginalized communities and are told that their voice and their perspective doesn't matter. When you empower them and they see the power of just like getting up and speaking with people or sharing their story, even just with their ensemble of a few other students, it's so powerful and life-changing when you see that light go off and they're like, wow, I can my voice is powerful, storytelling is powerful. Like I performed something and I saw it affected that person in that way, you know, and moved them. It's just, uh, uh, I could- Yeah, I and but also it's, they're not mutually exclusive. I've had no. a career. I've had what people would yeah. call a successful career. And I've also dedicated my life to being inside prison for mm -hmm. 15 years, you know? So I think that it's, they're not mutually exclusive. It just depends on, if you have the courage and can you trust your art enough that you can trust that by sharing it with other people in a way that's not just performance, if you can trust that by, you know, going outside of the Hollywood grind to see what else the arts can do, if you can trust that that will also push your own career, it will also make you, it will give you still the success that you think you want. <laughs> I don't right. call that success. I'm like, that's not success. To me, success is happiness and mm -hmm. generosity yeah. and success. But still some people think that that's success. Um yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's powerful. That's what I, I like that. It's it's a call to action to all you artists that are listening. Yeah, I hope you really heard what Sabra's been saying this whole time. I hope you are listening because so many of us do. It's true. So many of us do. We say this and we talk about this, but I don't think for a lot of people it clicks. And it's hard because it is, once again, I'm sorry I keep bringing up capitalism, but it is that grind, you know, especially as artists. Oftentimes we are barely paid or not paid a living wage for yeah. what we're doing. We have to work a ton of different jobs. We don't know when the work is going to come. So we do get very much into that sort of tunnel vision mindset of like next job, next job, next job. And we're not really present even. And that's what we do. Call, yeah. What people call networking, you know, so my challenge to people who are artists who are listening is, especially women on International Women's Day and Women's Month, hey. um, is every time you you think to yourself or look in the mirror, be like, oh, my God, am I getting too old? Or am I too fat? Or, you know, any of the things that we think about, you know, or being in competition with other artists. Every time that happens, I challenge you to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to go online and I'm going to find some way to help an arts organization or to volunteer as a teaching artist or mm -hmm. to read a, a book or you know about the history like we right now Karen and I you are working yeah. on the history of, of black American theater to That's take right. actual physical action that gets you closer to understanding the true power of the arts because that you know I believe in cause and effect I'm a Buddhist it's also science you know that cause of like I'm too fat, but you know, that will have an effect in your life. And if you can do a cause that overrides that, okay, I was just thinking today about I'm too fat to ever be an actor. Okay, so now I'm going to go and find out, you know, what is my local theater doing in the community and how can I volunteer to support that? Mm. That will change your life. <laughs> yeah. That's a, a very powerful, actionable step that we can all take. And it it's 
I always like to say, you know, every, I don't think any one action is necessarily too small of an action. Of course, we like to see actions that are sustained and continuous, but it's just starting with the one thing. Anything. Like, and then, read, oh, read a book. Yeah, read a book, watch a documentary. Yeah. You know, reach out to another actor and say, you know what? Why don't we just like jam a scene together? Like yeah. over Zoom. Let's just play. Play what, for what fun play without together. needing a product. Exactly. An end product. Exactly. Like, just explore. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, this has been really wonderful talk. I do have one more thing that I want to ask you before I let you go. And I just want to say that you are someone who I am constantly learning from, who I consider a mentor and a guide in this journey in addition to a being- bad influence. <laughs> <laughs> in addition to being a really awesome friend too. Um and one thing that you've said that I always bring up when I'm giving um, my own talks in like communities and things in the work that I do, um, you said this to me and it really has stuck with me and it's something that I always come back to in my work. Um, was, it, was it drink more wine? No, but that's also important. No, <laughs> not drink more wine, but you always, um, you always stress the importance of understanding that we are fighting for a future that we may never see. And I just wanted you to have the opportunity to explain how you came to that realization and why it's really important for all of us to understand that. Because it's it's really helped me. It's something I, I carry with me all the time. And when I share it with other people, they're like, oh my God, wow, you're right. It's It's so powerful. Yeah, thank you. I think that that comes from... Um, my mentor, who is a Buddhist leader called Daisaku Ikeda, and he talks about uh, developing a 300-year vision. Because a 300-year vision is actually, when I started really thinking about it, uh, is a perfect amount of time. Because in 300 years, nobody is going to be around to remember your name. Nobody. There's like, you know, they won't remember your name, even if you're famous in 300 years, it's very unlikely that they're going to remember your name. So it's a very good amount of time to, to project to. So what can I do today that will have an impact in a time where people don't even know my name and I'm less than dust, less than a handful of dust? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you look back at 300 years ago, and then you look forward 300 years and think about what's happened in those 300 years and what really matters, you know, what are the things that have really changed in a good way and a bad way? What has really changed the world in 300 years? And then jump on that ship, you know? So like right now, we're, we're talking about justice and as always civil rights and climate change and things that really will affect people 300 years from now. And how can I live my life to create value in one of those or several of those areas? And how can I live my life not to further damage those areas? Because that's mm -hmm. gonna be what, what is still around in 300 years. And what I've learned is by trying very hard to develop this 300 year vision is that having a vision that's beyond my lifetime brings so much joy to this life. It makes mm. so much happiness because I'm no longer concerned about my personal death, you know, or my little life that I have here in Los Angeles or getting this or achieving that. All of that is great. That's nothing wrong with those dreams that people have. But really it puts me in a, a place where my life is dedicated in a much wider world you know like I, it makes me try to live in a way that i can honor this planet and the people who've come before me and the people who will come after me but mm -hmm. in a very non-selfish way which is 
weird but I think that's why it creates so much happiness because it puts me in the flow of the ocean of humanity rather than me being in Sabra in 2021 who is an actor and a social justice activist living in Los Angeles that's like sad that would be sad if that's mm. my life rather than being in this vast ocean of people who've come before and people who are coming after just in this physical you know, body that I have now. And that also makes me grateful for this physical body that I have with all its flaws and celebrations. <laughs> right. So yes, that's, that's why I do it. And, you know, it's a matter of, I think that what, what the pandemic, one of the things may have taught us is to give time for contemplation. It's a matter, you have to have time to contemplate, to think, to be that's quiet. Right. Yeah. And to be quiet and to, you know, what be present. present. Yeah. You know, that's present. one of the things that we've had being at home and not necessarily, I mean, for you and me, it hasn't been like that this whole time, but for a lot of us, we've had a moment of pause or at least moments of yeah. pause where we are not worried about going from the next thing to the next thing, or just, you know, caught up in our, okay, what do I need to do in this moment to survive? What do I need to do? Cause we've just been, here at home in, in our own personal space and reflecting. And obviously when you're in a time like this, when there is so much um, death and trauma and devastation, mm -hmm. it really also makes you um, think about your own mortality and think about your own purpose and all of that. And so. even before that, your own life, like why are you here? Like, what yeah. are you contributing to the ocean of life? You know, like, what what is your little drop in the ocean? And mm. it's not, I promise you, it is not booking that next job or getting that boyfriend or making that million dollars. I promise you that is not what you're here to contribute. Nothing wrong with any of those things. Yeah, but that's it's all a bonus, but that's not your purpose. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, if you want to give me a million dollars, anybody, I'll take it as well. <laughs> oh, yeah, let's not. Let's not get it twisted. Like, of course. I have no problem. If you want us to, to book that dollars. job, we'll, we'll book it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, this is so good. Thank, Thank you. you. Oh, I love talking to you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. Thank you for just spouting all of that wisdom and, and love. And I always, every time I, I talk to you or spend time with you, I always learn so much. I'm always like, oh, yes. And I'm going to like hold on to this and take this with me. You really, I, I know I'm just gushing and saying a lot, but you are so, <laughs> you are so inspiring and you really like, I, I feel like anyone who has had the privilege of knowing you and really like, listening to you and working with you it's it's affected all of us in a very special oh profound way thank so. you sometimes i just think i know i should say this that i know that people think that i'm super critical about the country that i emigrated to however yeah. i do think a citizen is somebody who, who repays their debt of gratitude and the way i repay my debt of gratitude is by asking this country to be what it says it is and has never been. So, I'm super critical. You should have heard how I talked about my other country, my home country. Do you think I'm critical about America? But I think it's important. It's a citizen's job. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I also say when people, I used to hear this when I was in college, um, because where I went, I went to um, a school that's a predominantly white institution and had, you know, all kinds of issues, but there were positives. And I was someone who was there on a full scholarship. So it's like, well, you know, like, do you have the right to be hypercritical? You should just be happy to be here and look at how many opportunities yeah. you got. Like, yes, I did get opportunities. I did get to study at a great school. I did get to study abroad and I had funding and all of that. I appreciate that. But it's always um, that idea that I bring up to people the understanding that if you really do love something and care about something, you should be hypercritical right. of that thing that you love. You should want it to be its best and you should want it to truly serve everyone and all members of that community if that's a community that you care about. And that's especially when 
you said you were this thing. I didn't tell you to be land of the free home of the brave. Mm. You said that. Mm -hmm. So I, I, you know, it's not easy and it's not cheap to come to America. Nobody is just like, oh, you know, oh, hey, I think, you know, I think I'll walk for, you know, three months from South America to be able to come. No one's just like doing this stuff on a whim. It takes a lot to immigrate, emigrate. And, you know, when you do, you're made a promise. And I'm like, listen, you were kind enough to allow me in and now I'm going to hold you to the promise. That's right. <laughs> you know? we're, we're here now, whether we are people who were brought here, our ancestors were brought here by slaves, whether we're people who immigrated, whether we're people who are the indigenous people of the land who have been forcibly removed from much of their indigenous lands and are currently having to buy their lands back. Um, we are all promised the same thing. Yeah. So this country needs to live up to that. Or and, just yeah. say what you say what you really are then. Yeah. So that's fine too. Say what you really are. And then we can make a decision whether to come here or stay here or not. But you know, mm -hmm. if I I really do think that the idea of America is an amazing idea and I want it to be that and it, it must be that because it would be the hope of the world if it was you know so I think that it's worth doing national truth racial healing and transformation however hard it's going to be and it will be hard it's worth doing it because man imagine if we could really be that Whew. and that's not about being number one there is no, no number one <laughs> That's another thing. Yeah, maybe that's what some people would need to hear. There's uh, no number one in truth and healing. We can only be number one if there's a competition. There is no country competition. Everyone's just no. Especially with this, there's really no country competition no. happening at all with this in just the world power. What what if we were just a country, another country that's just doing the best it can? That would be fantastic. Yeah. And just serving its community, its that people. Would be great. I would want to genuinely stay. serving its constituents. Yeah. Let's just ask for that. Can yeah. we have that? And it's like on every level, you know, like when you think about what happened last year when people putting BLM statements out, it's the same as like America saying what it is. I'm like, oh, okay, so now you said it. Now I'm going to we have to hold you accountable because you said it. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened is. I was like, there's no, after this whole summer and everyone suddenly realizing magically now, suddenly that this country is racist. Oh, wait, it's racism? So I'm like, wow, where have you been? Um, but okay, okay, fine. Maybe you were unaware. Well, you're here now. Everyone is aware now. We are all starting in the same place, well, not maybe not in the same place, but we all have the same common understanding, hopefully. So what are you going to do about it? Right. Are you just going to say, this is a problem? Or are you going to take active steps every day to fix the problem that you are now aware of? Mm -hmm. Which is it going to be? It's so exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> We're just tired. I can only do it for three days, and then I need a year break. Yeah, right. We do deserve a break. Can someone else do something? No, I'm kidding. There are lots of people doing lots of things. Yeah, there are. Definitely. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank well, you. Yeah, thank you. This was wonderful as always. And I am sure we will be back in person in the park soon. Until then, we will be, you know, yeah. gathering virtually like we are now. But I'm very much looking forward to the day when I get to share the stage with you and you oh. get to, like, make me um, laugh when oh, I'm yeah. not. <laughs> as, as I tend to do. <laughs> I can't wait to dread my scenes with you because I know that I'm going to have to do everything I should <laughs> 
can to not break on stage. I but whenever can't. I do that, I always end up breaking myself. I try to get other people, but I'm always the one that <laughs> hysterical. That's so true. So, that's so true. For people I anticipate it coming as well. I'm like, oh, I'm going to get her. I'm going to get her. And then I'm like already crying with laughter. Literally. That's so true. For anyone who's listening who saw Pericles, I'm sure there's like a 50% chance, maybe like a 75% chance you were there on a night when Sabra made me laugh. Um. Oh my God. It's my job in life. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's art break. You can find more information about Sabra and the amazing work she's doing in the description of this episode. Tired of Zoom? Not sure if you can stand another online event? Well, we've got your back. Shakespeare and Chill, The Body Ball is a virtual experience that promises to entertain and excite you. This irreverent and fun online event uncovers the saucy history behind Shakespeare's plays. Bringing the text to vibrant life will be classical actors, burlesque performers, and literary experts. Virtual audience members will enjoy a variety of speakers, performances, and interactions. Beware, you may find yourself blushing. The auction opens May 2nd and closes May 16th. The livestream event is May 15th from 7 to 9 p.m. I hope to see you there. That's all for today. Don't forget to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. We can't wait to see you soon, but always remember, stay socially distant, not emotionally.